Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Today we have a special message from Pastor Pilgrim Benham from Bradenton, Florida. He taught at our 2022 men's conference and is here sharing the word with us this Sunday. Enjoy. Thank you, Calvary Monterey, for having me this morning. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, I'm from Bradenton, Florida, and um, wasn't able to bring my family with me, but what a glorious church, what a glorious uh, town. It's great to be here. Uh, You guys are so hospitable. So uh, thank you to Pastor Nate uh, for having me. He has the best preaching voice on the planet. So you're a blessed congregation. He loves you. And uh, it's just very clear that God's doing a good work here. So uh, I have the privilege of opening the scripture with you this morning. So let's do that. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Colossians 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through around 20. So we're going to cover a lot of ground in the reading of Scripture, but then we're going to really zoom in and focus on verses 12, 13, and 14. And I heard you're the rowdy service, so that's a good thing. We do a lot of amens in our church back in Florida uh, with all the Florida men. So uh, you're encouraged to express yourself today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the Word of God. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God 
was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we praise you this morning that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. This morning, it is able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it judges the intentions of our deceitfully wicked hearts. Lord, that's hard to pray this morning, to acknowledge before you that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, that they're easily led astray, that we can forget so quickly what it means to understand the gospel. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, today to do a work that only you can do, a work of regeneration, a work of renewal in the hearts of your people and in the hearts of those who are not yet your people, that you would bring much glory to Jesus. We pray that our focus as this church's vision and theme is Jesus famous. Lord, we pray that this morning our focus would be to make much of Jesus, to bring him renown, to bring him glory. And so, Lord, we need your help to do that as we open this text. Lord, I pray that you would teach us by your spirit, you'd encourage us, you'd comfort us, and that we, as Paul prayed often, would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May we understand that today. For your glory, for our good, and for Christ's sake, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, did you know that after the Bible, which really is in its own category, and after William Shakespeare, who is in his own category, so after the Bible, after William Shakespeare, the third most uh, famous or uh, most read author as far as downloads and purchases, so the best-selling books, the Bible works by William Shakespeare, the third, if you're into trivia, is Agatha Christie. Now, Agatha Christie is a very, or was a very famous uh, mystery, uh, murder mystery novel writer. She wrote over 66 novels, and uh, she wrote things such as, you may have heard of Murder on the Orient Express, or there's actually a movie out right now called Death on the Nile. That was an Agatha Christie novel. She wrote often with the, the French uh, detective Poirot, who's a great character in, in novels. And so uh, what you may not know is that in 1926, she disappeared for 10 days. And when her husband eventually identified her, she was 200 miles away from where her car had been located. But what was really strange is that as her husband identified her, she didn't recognize him. She didn't know who he was. She didn't know who she was. She didn't know what had happened to her. And she had no clue that she was this world famous uh, novelist. And so I find it interesting that a woman known for mysteries found herself in the middle of her own, you could say, riddle. She became as lost in her own life as we are as her readers halfway through her novels. Now, it may not have been physical amnesia, but it was certainly something of the spiritual sort that the church in Colossae was being tempted to suffer. They were in Christ, but the problem was their faith was becoming threatened by these false teachers who had come in and who had began to say, you know what, you might be in Christ, but Christ isn't that important. They began to bring in this hybrid theology of a little bit of Gnostic heresy, as well as this, this false worship of angels and demons and other spirits. And what they did was basically saying Jesus was not enough. 
Jesus actually wasn't that great. He was, he was on the same level as any other spiritual being, any other spiritual authority. And even though of all the churches Paul wrote to, the city that he wrote to here in Colossae, oh, they're dimming the lights a little bit. All right. We're going to have an intimate time this morning. <laughs> of, all the, uh, of all the cities that he wrote to, this city, Colossae, may have been the most insignificant. They had suffered a huge earthquake in the year 60 in the first century, and they never recovered from that earthquake. And yet, even though it's an inconsequential city, the message of the book of Colossians is maybe perhaps back at it. Here we go. <laughs> Was perhaps the most significant. Why? Don't get distracted here. Because this book teaches us the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and the power of the gospel, meaning what we have as followers of Christ. The church may be tempted to forget who they were and whose they were, but Paul wants to remind them to know who they are and what the gospel is. Now, as a church, you've been studying Nehemiah and how God is bringing renewal in the lives of his people. And last week, you looked at how uh, God reminds people, uh, his people, of their story. He reminds us who we are and whose we are. And what I want to do is I want to lean a little bit deeper into that this morning and see what Paul prayed for the Colossian church, specifically in verses 12, 13, and 14. And you could say for them to know who they were and what their story was. And so we're going to zoom in a little bit and see three things if you're taking note. We're going to see in verse 12 that we are qualified to receive an inheritance. We're going to see in verse 13 that we are delivered from one kingdom to another. And we're going to learn in verse 14 that we are redeemed for God's glory. We, as a men's conference, wonderful time this weekend, and we talked a little bit about what it means to be redeemed yesterday. And we even watched a Chevy commercial. We're not going to do that today, but if your husband came to that, just ask what it was about because the conference was sponsored by Chevy. So um, <laughs> now to set up verses 12, 13, and 14, uh, notice what Paul thanks God concerning the Colossian believers. Verse three, he says, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I can't say the same. When I pray for people, I don't always thank God for them. I'm sometimes going, why Lord? Why did you put them in my life? But Paul says, every time we pray for you, we thank God for three things. Note with me, verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, the love you have for all the saints. And thirdly, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul thanks God every time he prays for the Colossians because of those three things that happen to remain for every Christian, faith, hope, and love. And which is the greatest of these? You didn't seem too confident on that this morning. <laughs> but yeah, the greatest of these is love. So Paul always thanked God for the Colossians uh, for those things. And he says in verse six, one of the most incredible things that happened is when the grace of God and the gospel of God was given to them, shared with them, they immediately saturated it in. They received the good news and they, it began to bear fruit in their lives. They received it most likely from Epaphras, who most scholars believe is the one who planted the church there uh, in that little uh, section of uh, the valley. And so uh, Paul heard about the fruit that they were bearing in the gospel. And so in verse nine, notice what he says. He says, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. And he heard good things. Usually when we hear bad things, we go, oh, we need to pray. But he heard good things. He's like, I better pray 
Things are going well there. I need to, I need to pray for them and not stop praying. But here's what he prays for, verse 9. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says the reason for the spiritual wisdom and understanding is verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, being fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. And then as you bear fruit in every good work and you begin to live it out, he says that you increase now in the knowledge of God. You're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for more ability to live. So do you see how this is a little cyclical? Paul's consistent prayer was them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will first so they understand their theology, they understand the gospel. And that produces not just Bible facts, not just intellectual uh, you know, information. I told the men this weekend that it's not as if church is just a classroom that we attend and then we hopefully can regurgitate the material to get an A and share with the professor. Hey, professor, I got all the, the stats you gave me, and so I got, the, I got the Bible trivia right. No, the idea that Paul's getting at is that uh, our life, just like Paul's letters, flow from the theological to the practical. Paul doesn't start right out saying, start obeying, get with it. No, he begins his letters saying, we need to know who God is. We need to know who we are. And in light of that, here's what we must do. You see, the theological allows us to flow into the practical. And it's not the other way around. The fruit on the tree is only possible because the roots underground nourish the fruit. It isn't the other way around. Uh, and so Paul prays that they as a church would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might and that they would get, continue to grow in the knowledge of God. As they grow in the knowledge of God, they become obedient. They live a life that's pleasing. As that happens, they begin to grow in the knowledge of God. And so it continues the cycle. But they had a heresy that was seeking to threaten uh, their spiritual memory. And so one person points out this on the screen. The quote says, the Colossian Christians were coming to Christ from a secret wisdom tradition steeped in demonology and spirit worship. And their constant temptation was to revert back to those practices and to treat Christ as just another spirit among many. And so that's why, as we just read, Paul goes on in verse 15 to really set apart Christ. He, if you notice with me when we read that, he speaks about how Christ is so much greater. He's above all things. And, and not just all things outside of the church, but over everything in the church. Jesus is the one by whom all things hold together. All things were created by him and for him. And, and so Jesus is in a class all by himself. In fact, verse 16 says that he is overall authority. So these things in verse 16 were things the false teachers love to emphasize. The thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus isn't just one God among many, as is popular today in the world. Well, yeah, Jesus is just one path among many. No, as Jesus said, I am the way. I'm not a way to God. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And so Paul is saying, no, he is far above all things. In fact, in verse 19, notice with me, or right before that in verse 18, he says that in all things he might be preeminent. The word preeminent there means first place. The dictionary defines this as the one of, of paramount rank, paramount importance, the position of distinction above every other. Some synonyms 
for this word preeminent could be supreme or incomparable, surpassing, towering, transcendent, ultimate, unequalable, unmatchable, unsurpassable. Jesus is not just another good religious figure who had some nice things to say, and if we obey his teachings, then life will uh, be the blessed life. That's not the idea. There is no one and no thing who compares with Jesus. And so in chapter three, when we get to the practical, Paul says, because Christ is so above all things, that's where we're to fix our eyes. That's where we're to fix our minds is above all things where Christ is in heaven. Now, in verses 12, 13, and 14, uh, Paul is thanking the Father, but he's thanking the Father for three things, and that's really what I wanted to share with us this morning, that we would not miss these three things. This is what N.T. Wright calls the new exodus. Uh, this is uh, the gospel in a shortened form. Uh, and so what I want to do this morning is just lean into that, lean into the truth of the gospel this morning. Whether you're a believer and you've been saved for many, many years, you've been walking with Jesus uh, for a really long time, or if you're a back row Baptist and uh, this is maybe uh, something you've heard of, you've, heard, you've been familiar with the Bible, uh, or if you're like, um, someone brought me in today because there was free coffee and I got tricked into this, I didn't realize this was a church, okay. Uh, so wherever we're at, the gospel is going to minister to us today. So the first thing we see in verse 12 is number one, that we are qualified. Paul says, I thank the Father, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Would you circle that word qualified? The word qualified there means to make fit, to render competent. Uh, so it's not that, notice he doesn't say, giving thanks to you and your awesomeness. You have been qualified because you are wonderful. No, he says giving thanks to the Father who has done the work of making us fit. He's done the work of rendering us competent. Now, there are certain things that we can qualify for and cannot qualify for. I, I noticed that in the last few years, because of corona, times have been tough. The federal government has been giving out stimulus money, but not to everyone, not to anyone. Remember, you had to meet certain qualifications. And we were so thankful when we did. We, we uh, looked and we said, okay, uh, the qualifications are you have to have filed your taxes last year. You have to make sure you have direct deposit uh, in the IRS bank information. And you need to make sure uh, that you make under a certain amount of money. A friend of mine made over, just like a few hundred over the amount. He was pretty bummed he didn't get a stimulus money. The, that was what qualified you to receive that. But notice with me, it's the Father who has done the qualifying. You and I were not born as natural heirs of the inheritance. We didn't just wake up one day and like, hey, you qualify to be adopted into his family. But the Father is the one who has made you right. He's qualified you. And now you've received something that you previously would never have been qualified to attain. Isn't it wonderful news, beloved, to know that there's nothing you can do to qualify for the glorious grace of God? The I mean, first service was more excited about that than you guys. They, they, they were just over the top. So it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what side of town you grew up on. 
It doesn't matter what name brands are stitched on your clothing. It doesn't matter what your net worth is. It doesn't matter how spiritual or religious you are. It doesn't matter how much of the scripture you could quote. It doesn't matter if you've been a person who might lightly attend church. No, the only way to be qualified for this inheritance is for the Father to give the approval. And see, Romans 8, 17 declares to us that you and I are joint heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. He, Jesus, is the true son, the true heir. And you and I have been grafted into, adopted into the family to come alongside Christ. And though we're unworthy, we are now qualified to be inheritors. This is not something we work for. It's something we work from. It's been freely bestowed on us based on our family heritage in Christ. It would be great to find out that your uncle died and left you a huge amount of wealth. That would be wonderful news. You'd find out from someone, hey, by by the way, uncle so-and-so left you this big amount of money. You would be excited about that. And yet, Paul says, true riches are found in the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, some of us are afraid that might be in jeopardy. But Peter reaffirms us, uh, or reassures us in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to an inheritance. And then he describes it in three ways. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it does not fade away. Much unlike our 401ks. It's not something that has lost value or will lose value over time. He says, it's reserved in heaven for you. And in the same way, you are reserved. You are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, many Christians don't understand or realize the privilege that is ours through Christ. We don't deserve this inheritance. Nothing can take it away from us but we've been qualified because of his glorious grace. Qualified for an inheritance we could never earn or deserve. That is good news. But secondly, Paul thanks the Father in verse 13 for the fact that we've been delivered. Notice verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, would you circle the word uh, delivered? That word delivered in some of your translations, if you have a different translation than the English standard, uh, it would read rescued. So our salvation was a rescue mission, a rescue operation. And then there's that phrase domain of darkness. And another way of saying it is power of darkness. One commentator says that, that these words, domain of darkness, refer to sinister forces that have been marshaled against us for decisive combat in the spiritual realm. Before Christ, think of who you were. Before Christ, the scripture declares to you that you were in your very natural state, Ephesians 2, children of wrath, a person in darkness, spiritually dead, spiritually blind. There's a lot of different ways you can describe your condition. And we stumbled around in the pitch black of our spiritual ignorance, and yet we were also held under the power in the domain of darkness. The, you could say the power and domain of Satan. I know that's my story. I was raised in a Christian home by Christian hippies. And so that made life really exciting. We didn't have doors in our house. We had flannel sheets that separated rooms. So it was, it was electric. It was a lot of fun. Actually, I don't know if we even had electric growing up. Um, so my parents named me Pilgrim. Thanks for that. Um, really... <laughs> Really appreciated that in middle school, said no one ever. Um, 
And uh, so I was asking, I told the men this, I was asking my dad uh, years ago, I was like, so, so Pilgrim, like what sick joke was that to play on <laughs> this perfect little boy of yours? And, uh, and uh, he, said, well, he said, well, we named you after Pilgrim's Progress. And so I was like, well, that's, that's pretty awesome. And he goes, but, but originally uh, we were gonna name you Luke. And I was like, yeah, because that's biblical, thanks. Uh, and he goes, well, but, but you were born right when Star Wars came out. And so um, we didn't want to embarrass you. <laughs> I was like, okay. So you named me Pilgrim. Okay, got it. Just clear. So even though I was exposed to the love of God, I was exposed to scripture, uh, growing up in that home and made a profession of faith at a young age, uh, I, in my teen years, began to rebel, began to run from Christ. And I thought in my own spiritual ignorance, I'm going to figure out religion. And so I went to all these different uh, churches, different denominations, just seeking truth. And I had, I had my judgment again, oh, all religion is the same. And, and so I had this, this attitude. And I remember at one point in my, in my spiritual ignorance, uh, in my absolute folly, I bought a car from a Christian and they had a fish on the back of it, a Christian fish. And I took it off and I snapped it. And, and like in defiance, like, like that'll show them, you know, that'll show you God. And, and God was looking down with grace and with compassion and within maybe weeks, he allowed my entire world to unravel. And I realized I'm banking all of my life in emptiness. Who am I? And by his providential grace, he drew me to his son. And I was able to see Jesus and repent and trust Christ. And my life has never been the same since. Uh, it's been glorious because of the work of Christ. And so that's my story. But I can say, as many of you can nod your head in agreement at your own story, that you were under the control, under the domain of darkness. You were, you were fumbling about in your spiritual ignorance. Jesus himself used this phrase, domain of darkness, power of darkness, in John chapter 3, verse 19, where he said, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, the, the light has come into the world, but they love the darkness. They love uh, the, the, not the light, but the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus in Gethsemane said, now the power of darkness, uh, this domain is being broken. In Galatians 1, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And we know that, that's the cross. But the, the purpose behind that was to deliver us from the present evil age. So the means of deliverance was the propitiation of Christ at Calvary. Our salvation is a rescue mission. Jesus rescued us because of his work on the cross. But notice secondly, in that, that same verse, that he transferred us from the king, uh, domain of darkness, he transferred us to the kingdom of his loved or beloved son. That phrase, transferred, that word is also translated convey. And William Barclay said that this word was used in the ancient world. When one empire would invade another empire, does this sound familiar? When one country invaded another country or empire to another empire and they would sabotage it and siege it and eventually if that country or that empire lost in combat, then all of the people, all of the money, all of the resources and all of the land were now transferred from the original kingdom to the conquering kingdom. And we see that happening in Ukraine today as Russia is, uh, has invaded and 
uh, unless there's some sort of intervention, it seems as though uh, they will succeed in that invasion. And so this is a bad thing. In the ancient world, this was a bad thing. When Persia invaded your territory, your country, your empire, if they defeated you, you are now Persian. The land you lived on that you thought was your land is now Persian land. Your resources, all of your animals, that was now belonging to a different lord. And so that's a negative sense. That's a terrible sense. And yet, in a positive light, that's what Paul is saying about us. He's saying that when Christ came, he conquered sin and death. And he conquered not only sin and death, but Satan's power. And he has taken all the land and all the people and all the resources that belong to one kingdom, and he has now transferred it in a good way from a kingdom of wickedness to a kingdom of light. You see, there are really only two kingdoms in this world. There may have been the Roman Empire and the United Kingdom and different countries and different territories, but there are truly only two. Two cosmic kingdoms. There's the true kingdom, the kingdom we call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. This is the rule and the reign and the realm of Christ who is the king. He's not just a king though. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And we just read it. He is the one who created all things and therefore all other rulers and authorities, they are ultimately under his ultimate authority. And this king, Jesus, though he was eternal, he entered into time and space and race and place and was incarnate as one of us, as a baby. Jesus grew up and began to teach about this kingdom. He began to demonstrate this kingdom and its power over the other kingdom, the demonic influences that that were controlling much of creation. Jesus came in and he spoiled that. He overturned those dark uh, uh, influences. Jesus taught about his kingdom and then he demonstrated it by suffering by bleeding, by dying, by being buried, by rising again triumphantly. He defeated that that final enemy death and one day he'll return riding a white horse to conquer and to vanquish his final enemies. And so we become a citizen of that kingdom. Again, not through good works. We enter citizenship by repenting of our sin and by trusting Christ for our salvation. Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. We're born once and we're born again. We're now right with the king. We now have all the blessings and the benefits of being a citizen in his kingdom. And now we're a part of a kingdom of priests, a citizen and a saint with the citizens and saints of his kingdom. Now, that might be true. There's one kingdom, but there's a second kingdom. There's a diabolical and corrupt kingdom. And this kingdom goes by different names throughout time. It's always in opposition to the kingdom of Christ. It it has gone by the name of Babylon uh, or Rome or Satan or maybe more popular today, the kingdom of self. But the agenda is always the same. The agenda is to resist the king, defy the king, war against the king. Raise yourself up in your hubris, in your vanity. Seek to make yourself great, to seat yourself on the throne, to war against the king to use the flesh and the world system to achieve your greatness and glory. And that battle that happened in the Garden of Eden, and it was a battle, it seemed like that diabolical kingdom won. Sin entered the world and and death through sin. And yet, uh, as we read in Genesis 3.15, there was another victory coming where the Satan, uh, the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And so because of the fall, all of us by nature 
are born not all, all, by default into, this, into the, the glorious kingdom. We're by nature citizens of the fallen kingdom, the corrupted kingdom, the false kingdom. That means in our natural state, we are at enmity. We are in opposition, the scripture says, to the king. We're enemies of the father, the omnipotent creator. You and I stand as rebels. And yet at Calvary, what happened is that Jesus came and he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, not when he rose again, when he died on the cross, that was the, the public disarming, the stripping away of Satan's power. It says in Colossians 2.15, just a chapter after this, that Jesus disarmed. He took the weapons and, and took the ammo out of the weapons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. He humiliated them by triumphing over them in him. That was at the cross. So by nature, we are enemies of God. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, we have now been rescued out of that kingdom and now we've been brought into a kingdom of light. We once were his enemies, but like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel, we, though we were an enemy to the king and disabled spiritually, he has come in and he has made peace with us. He has reconciled us to him and he's carried us to his table to seat us with himself. You see, this is encouraging for us in our struggle against sin. Don't raise your hand, but if you're here today and, and just check your pulse, you struggle with sin. None of us have arrived. We're not in that place where, oh, I don't ever sin anymore. I've, I've come to that place. So Spurgeon says this, Charles Spurgeon says, beloved, we are still tempted by Satan. That's true. But we're not under his power. We have to fight with him, but we are not his slaves. He is not our king. He has no rights over us. We do not obey him. We will not listen to his temptations. Isn't that glorious? We have been transferred from that kingdom, doing nothing to deserve it. And yet he's brought us into right standing with the Father. Everything we are, everything we have, is now under the lordship of King Jesus. For those who have repented and trusted Christ, the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness. But it gets better. Thirdly, in verse 14, we see that we are also redeemed. We need to remember the story. We need to remember who we are and whose we are. And so he says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, if you circle those two words, redemption and forgiveness, these are financial words. And uh, remember what money was? I don't know. The inflation's gone up, gas prices are going up. And so we don't love talking about money anymore, but these are financial terms. And the word redemption is the word that would be used to buy someone back out of slavery. So you were, you were sold into slavery. Someone came and paid your price of redemption. And now they had settled that and you were free. Jesus used a similar word in Matthew 20, 28. He said, the son of man, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give himself as someone who would redeem those out of slavery. And you and I can't buy ourselves out. We don't have the means to pay for this. Someone else had to pay the price. It certainly can't be another sinner because they have to pay their own price. So we needed someone outside of slavery who could still identify with us and be willing to pay the price to free us from our slavery to sin. And Romans 3.24 says, this redemption is only found in Christ Jesus. This points us to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We are dependent upon that price being paid for us to be saved. So we're redeemed, but we're also, notice, forgiven. And that word... Uh, 
has with it this idea of a, of a debt being paid. If you and I were not forgiven, if we weren't redeemed, we would still be guilty. We would still be dead in our sin. We would stand before a just and holy God and we would suddenly realize in absolute terror that we have no means to satisfy his wrath. There's nothing I can do to appease a holy God under the sun. It doesn't matter if I have a fancy diet. It doesn't matter if I can do the condo fold. It doesn't matter if I uh, buy a certain vehicle that is healthy for the environment. It doesn't matter if I've done all of these things and line them up. We could do every good work conceived under heaven and still face an eternity in hell. Jesus's rescue mission was not just to rescue us from Satan. It was also to rescue us from our sin. No spiritual power under heaven can qualify us to become God's children. No spiritual power under heaven can keep us in its hostile grip if Christ has come to set us free. And no spiritual power can threaten to undo or unravel our salvation if Christ has paid that price and forgiven us. What a glorious reality, church, that we have been qualified. We have been delivered. We've been redeemed. Again, these are the new exodus. Last week in Nehemiah, you saw how Israel remembered. They had forgotten for generations, but they remembered as God's people. They had been delivered from Egypt. They had wandered around in the wilderness, and they suddenly remembered that, and they remembered the covenant that God had made with them. Now, in like manner, here in Colossians 1, we come to realize that we are also a people. We are also God's people who have been delivered and we've been brought into a new and spacious place because of the God of promise. You see, the gospel is not something that we graduate on from. As if that, well, see, that's Sunday school. That's for the kids. Uh, that's for the new believer. That's just, that's just the gospel. And, and so it's now time to graduate on to more important, better things. No, the gospel is something we never move from, we move deeper into. Uh, the gospel is something that we never move from and say, well, I've learned all of that. There's nothing more to learn. No, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, I, I passed on to you what was of first importance. And then he shares the gospel. This is what we build our lives on. He said to the Galatians, I'm surprised that you have moved on to other gospels, but there isn't any other gospel. There's no other good news. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, in light of these three glorious identity markers, that you're qualified, you are delivered, you are redeemed that there are really three ways we can respond. So if you're here and you're like, okay, yeah, so what? Uh, you may have missed the sermon, but this is, this is amazing. This is so, such good news. But in light of these truths, three things. Number one, because you're qualified, rest. Take a collective deep breath in the work that Christ has done on your behalf. Maybe it's time to repent this morning of trying to please God with all of our spiritual calisthenics. You see, some of us think that Jesus cried out from the cross, it has started. <laughs> In other words, hey guys, I got the ball rolling. And so now it's up to you to add to or perfect the work of my atonement. No, the work has been completed. The last words that Jesus spoke on the cross are written over every believer. They're written over you. They're written over every charge that Satan would bring against you because of your sin. They're written, it is finished. Spurgeon said this. He says, there's nothing more for God to do. It's finished. 
There's nothing more for you to do. It's finished. Christ need not bleed. It's finished. And you need not weep. It is finished. God, the Holy Spirit, need not delay because you're unworthy, nor need you delay because you're helpless. It is finished. Every stumbling block is rolled out of the way. Every gate is open. The bars of brass are broken. The gates of iron are burst asunder. It is finished. Come and welcome. Come and welcome. Beloved, because you're qualified this morning, rest. Rest in the finished work of Christ. As Keith Green sang, there's nothing more that you can do because it's all been done for you. So rest and rejoice in the fact that you're qualified. Secondly, if you're taking note, you want to write this down to apply this because you are delivered. I just want to encourage you to obey. Satan has no more power over your rescued spiritual life. That means you no longer have to sin when tempted. Prior to that, you were under the control of the domain of darkness and you had to sin, but now you've been set free and the war is over. Did you guys know that in World War II, there was a Japanese soldier who had been uh, marooned on a a small island in the Philippines and uh, he was completely disconnected from the war effort. So he had no idea that the allies had defeated Germany and Italy and Japan and that these countries had surrendered. Well, he didn't know that. And so when people landed on the island, his last orders were to defend the island. And so as he sees people coming to his island, he began to fire on them. And so eventually, after 30 years in the mid-1970s, he finally came to admit that, okay, Japan has surrendered. I find that to be a fascinating story because I think many of us as Christians have the same mindset. We don't realize that surrender has already happened, that our life is now hid with Christ and God. We still are fighting the same old battles, not realizing that Christ has delivered us. So in light of that truth this morning, Christian, obey. Walk in the light, not in the darkness. Allow the Lord to remove your frustrating temptations. Allow the work of the Spirit uh, to take hold of your life and obey. Finally, number three, because you're forgiven, because we are forgiven and redeemed, let's give thanks. See, Paul could look at the work of God in our salvation and he could have a heart and a mouth filled with gratitude. And our response should be the same. We should have, in light of what we've been given and forgiven, we should have the most uh, grateful hearts of all of the people on the planet. So may we not suffer like the Colossians were tempted to, suffering from spiritual amnesia, not forgetting who we are, but remembering our story. You know, I love stories. My son and daughter, growing up, we would, we would have bedtime and we'd read scripture and then I would recite to them these different stories. And they loved like the Westerns and we, we, uh, we'd get into different stories. Now they're teenagers and I'm lame, so I'm not, allowed, I'm not allowed to do the story time anymore. Now we just watch movies, but we all love a good narrative. We all love a good story. And in medieval England, one of the most popular stories, you, you know it, uh, I think Shrek pokes fun of it, but, but you know the story, it's the damsel in distress. Very famous medieval story, and it takes different forms. It's always in its basic template. There's a damsel in distress. She's, uh, she's usually a woman of wealth, worth. She's a princess usually, and she's been kidnapped by a dragon. She's locked up in the tower in a castle, and the king says to the knights, I need one of you to go bravely fight the dragon and rescue my daughter. And what happens when that knight bravely takes down the dragon and slays him, kills him, 
Of course, in every uh, of these stories, the, the princess falls in love with him uh, because he's a knight in shining armor. And so he not only takes out the dragon uh, and has the, you know, the reputation, but now he gets the girl uh, and they get married. So it's a love story. It's a rescue story. Um, but I, I think about that story that, that's in folklore and in, in the medieval writings. And I wonder uh, if we were to apply that to the gospel, then who are we? Some would say, well, I'm the knight. I'm going to take out the dragon. Um, some of us would say maybe like, I'm the dragon, man. I'm just unworthy. I, I'm, I'm just terrible. But I would say, no, no, we are, we are ultimately the woman. You see, the scripture describes God's people as the bride of Christ. We've been, we've been brought into a, a domain of darkness. We've been kidnapped, so to speak. And someone came to ransom us. Someone came to deliver us from the dragon. And what does the Bible describe the devil? Well, Re Revelation 12, 9 says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the knight who came to slay the dragon and save the girl, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is preeminent over all creation entered creation. He was obedient to death. To triumph over the dragon, the knight had to lay down his own life. He's not the knight in shining armor. No, he's the one in beaten, bloodied, and proven armor. He's the one who was crushed for our iniquity, who died to set the bride free. Jesus slayed the dragon. He saved the girl. That's our story. So never forget who you are. Never forget whose you are. You, beloved, are qualified, delivered, and redeemed. Thanks be to God. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, what a glorious truth this morning. The new exodus. We've been brought from darkness to light. Our sins have been forgiven through Christ. Lord, we thank you for these glorious truths in the gospel. May we never forget. We do forget. We're going to forget tomorrow. We move on. We think we can graduate to deeper theology, and yet, Lord, it's all here. May we stay in that place of gratitude. May we never take it for granted what we've been given, what we've been forgiven. Lord, we're so thankful that we can't qualify ourselves through spiritual activity. We're undeserving, and yet, Father, you've brought us in near. Once not a people, now brought into a people. Lord, we were in a kingdom of darkness, now in light. And Lord, we had a price that could never be paid with our own works, but it was completely paid because of your shed blood. We celebrate that this morning and we're just filled with gratitude. We, one day, as we're about to sing, we'll actually say these words. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus because you're the one alone who's worthy of our worship. So this morning, we do that together. We collectively sing praise and thanks for the God who saves. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not yet born again, they've never repented and trusted Christ, would you allow today to be the day of salvation? Draw them, Father, and allow them to be born again by your spirit. We love you and we thank you for these truths and we rest in them today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.